Well, uh, today we begin a long series uh, on the Gospel of John. And in my 20-something years of preaching in churches, uh, to my shame, I have never preached a series, not even a little series, in the Gospel of John, uh, which will lose me some points with other clergy, because John's a very preached-upon text. Um, but um, I've been a little in awe of it for many years. Uh, when I first became a Christian as a 16-year-old, this was my favorite of the four first-century biographies of Jesus we have called Gospels. Uh, this is the text I underlined more than any other Gospel. Uh, in fact, back in the days when people used to memorize Bible verses, I know some of you are that old, uh, in the days when people memorized Bible verses, I memorized, I'm pretty sure, more verses of John than all of the other parts of Scripture put together. I loved it. Now, you may have thought, well, then surely it should have been your most preached text. But actually, it's more that um, I'm worried of getting in the way. It's the text I'm most um, nervous about approaching um, and misinterpreting, because we're going to soon find out it's deep. It's really deep. It is the deepest of uh, the Gospels. Um, I used to feel the same uh, thing about the book of Revelation, right? But you know I faced that bogeyman earlier in the year, uh, so I think it's time to face the Gospel of John and traverse together the lofty heights of this wonderful gospel. And you can see the heights uh, right from the opening line, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, uh, sorry, was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, suddenly we know we're in a very interesting universe, right? Um, all of the gospels have their own special way of kicking off their life of Jesus. And um, it's pretty clear that each of the Gospels kick off in their opening lines in a way that becomes really significant for how you interpret the Gospel as you uh, read it. So in Matthew, many of you know, it opens with a genealogy. This is the text no one wants to be on the public roster for reading. Uh, but it begins, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and on and on and it goes, right? Um, but obviously Matthew is trying to set in our head that this is a story about the descendant of Abraham and King David. That becomes a really big theme for Matthew. Mark opens very differently. His first lines are simply, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And Isaiah becomes an interpretive key to understanding the rest of Mark's gospel. Luke opens by emphasizing history. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. And this history theme weaves its way through Luke's gospel. But then you turn to John, and John begins very differently. He begins at the beginning. I mean, the real beginning, the alpha beginning, the creation of the world. And he tells us, in the space of just a few words, that the one whose um, earthly life you are about to read was there at the creation, was responsible for the creation. Verses 2 and 3 
pretty dramatic. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now, all of the Gospels teach Christ's divinity. But for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you've really got to keep your eyes keenly watching the subtle movements of the Gospel. And eventually, you get this sense as the Gospels uh, build that the one whose life we're reading is God. Jesus is acting out the story of God in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in John, you don't have to wait. It's like the opening words are, before we get going, Jesus is God. Right? Amazing. He comes straight out and tells us that what we're about to read is not a biography only. It is nothing short of God the Creator unveiled. Unveiled. And when you read verse 1 of John's prelude... Scholars normally call verses 1 to 18 the prelude to the gospel. Uh, If you compare verse 1 with verse 14, you can see the dramatic statement that is at the heart of this particular gospel. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, but now that's just a setup for verse 14. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That is hard to miss. God unveiled in flesh for all to see. Here is the ultimate longing of the human heart. Every culture about which we know anything significant has made the quest for God, the one behind the many, the very heart of their search. Um, It's like human beings are cosmic orphans, always wondering where they came from, always wondering who our cosmic parent is. The caveman looked out at the starry host and went, that's weird, that's orderly, the elegance built into this, I wonder who's doing that. And and that simple observation or question is only more intense in the scientific age in which we live because in the scientific age, we know that order and elegance way more than the caveman did. This question of why the orderliness is more intense today than it ever was in caveman's day. Ancient philosophers, like the great Greek brainiacs, Xenophanes, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all offered their um, tentative approximations of the one behind the many. And, And they all insisted that some rational mind must lie behind the rational order of creation. But the interesting thing that's not so well known is that all of these classical Greek philosophers also lamented that that's about all we're ever going to know. We can know there must be an infinite mind behind the orderliness of creation, but we are probably forever doomed only to know that a divine mind exists, not what the divine mind thinks, and in particular, thinks of us. Indeed, a strong case can be made that the vague monotheism of the philosophers 
that belief that there's one unifying mind behind all reality, is probably the root of all religion. And that the polytheism that develops, the kind of you know, worship of many gods, is actually more like a spiritual consolation prize, a compensation for the unknowability of the eternal one behind everything. You can make a pretty good case for this, actually. It's true of indigenous religion. Indigenous religion in both America, native uh, Indians, and uh, indigenous Torres Strait Islands and, and Australians, um, have the, the great spirit that is unknowable behind all the many spirits that are more sort of in touch with the rocks and the rivers and so on. Okay? They both have that same idea. Uh, it's true of Chinese, ancient Chinese religion. There's a lot of study into Xian, this, I, this word for God that in the most ancient Chinese texts we have refers to one unifying being behind everything. And then that Shen, that one God, is sort of pushed into the background by Confucius, who preferred to think of God in impersonal terms and used the expression heaven. Heaven rules this. Heaven called the philosophers. Heaven does this. He's trying to sort of move God into the background, uh, but at the same time, you've got gazillions of other lower deities in China that are the compensation for the loss of the ultimate. My point is, in pagan religion, there is this lament Sure, there must be some mind, but we don't know what that mind is like, or thinks about, or thinks of us. We find this same lament in John chapter 14. Don't worry about it too much now. We'll get to it at least by the end of March. Uh, in John 14, Jesus reveals that he's going uh, he, he, he's actually going to leave. And the disciples are a little bit worried about this, and they, it's a beautiful scene. Um, they begin to ask questions that they've been saving up for a rainy day. This is the time you'd ask the Lord, you know, I've been really wondering about this. And Peter asks a cracking question. Thomas asks another. And then Philip blurts out with exasperation and a little lament these words in John 14.8. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. I have no idea what a good Jew was asking someone to show him God. What, what was he thinking? I don't know what he was thinking, but you can, you can hear the longing in the tone. That'll be enough. That's all I need to somehow see God. And Jesus replies with what I regard as the most outrageous statement in all sacred literature. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Huh. Soak that up. Show me God. I just want to see God. Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen God. The ancient philosophers were basically right. You could no sooner work out what the architect of the universe is like than you could work out what the architect of your house is like just by looking at the house. You can't tell that. You can only tell that there was a designer, not anything about the designer. But what Jesus is saying to Philip here, and what the whole of John's, uh, John's gospel is about, especially the prelude, 
is to say, well, the architect has turned up at the door and invited himself in. And you can see him in Jesus Christ. This is the central thought of the prelude to the gospel. In the beginning was the Word, which was God. The Word became flesh. But why is Jesus called the Word? I'm so glad you asked that question, because I wanted to talk about it. At the simplest level, it's through our words that we get to know each other, right? I mean, that would simply explain it. Uh, if you see someone on the train into the city each day for work, uh, you know, every day they're in the same seat, you're in the same seat, but you never say a word, you're not going to say you know them. You recognize them, sort of, but you don't know them. But if you, you know, tomorrow morning, you're on the train, you're heading into Wynyard, you say hello to that same person you've seen a thousand times, and they say hello, and over the next few weeks you start to share photos of your family, and you, your words are the kind of bridge from stranger to acquaintance and even to friend. Jesus is God's word in that sense. Jesus is how God crosses the eternal threshold from the stranger that every culture recognized must be there to the friend and father that we know in Jesus Christ. There's even more going on in John's use of the word, word. Um, I don't mean to get too nerdy, but it's important to have two other pieces of background. One, it's pretty clear John is alluding to Genesis 1 for his Jewish audience, right? I mean, you, you just think of the language connections between the opening paragraph of John and the opening uh, paragraph of Genesis, the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, does that sound similar? <laughs> God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, the Spirit of God was hovering above the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Notice, in the beginning, God didn't need any muscle to make the creation. He didn't need a cosmic war, as some of the pagan religions uh, taught, to uh, make the bits and pieces of creation. No, how did God make things? Don't let me make it up. Speaking. He spoke a word and everything came into existence. Let there be light, he said, and there was light. And picking up on this, Psalm 33 says... By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. The psalmist had read Genesis and knew that it was by the word that everything came into being. Now, here's the thing. Jews in John's day knew perfectly well that it was through the word that everything was made. And so in John's uh, terms, all things were made through the word. Verse uh, 3, without him, the word Nothing was made that has been made. And more than that, the word, verse 4, is the source of life. In him, the word was life. Every Jew knew that God spoke and everything was animated. More than that, that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And as you know, the opening lines of Genesis speak of God making light and it dispelling 
the darkness. All of this is straightforward Jewish Old Testament theology. Except, John's big twist in this prelude is that this word, which was for Jews the thing through which everything came into existence, this word crossed the absolute threshold into creation, into history, in flesh, in Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. In other words, the great Jewish longing to see the Word, to see God, to know God directly, comes to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Show us the Father, Philip said, and that will be enough. He's asking that as a Jew. If you have seen me, Philip, you have done what the Old Testament Scriptures said could never be done. You have seen God. But there's something else going on in John's use of the word, word. Really. All commentators note that John is doing something very sneaky and intriguing and beautiful for his pagan readers. Not just the Jewish ones, but for the Greek and Roman ones. Those with pagan religion. Because it is well known that Greeks and Romans used the word word for the origins of the world. In ancient Greek and Roman culture... The word, word, logos, the very word used by John repeatedly throughout the prelude, the word, word meant the rational principle of the universe, the thing that gives order to everything else. So Xenophanes and Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, all of them looked at the universe and said, there's some rational principle, there's an operating system here. And they called it by the word, word, logos. Now, just so you know, I'm not making this up. Let me quote a very famous hymn, 3rd century BC, by Cleanthes, a pagan, trying to worship the unknown God, but look at the language. I will praise you with my hymn and ever sing of your might. The whole universe spinning around the earth goes wherever you lead it. All the works of nature came to be established. You guide the universal word of reason, logos in the original, which moves through all creation. You know how to bring forth order from chaos. You have joined together all things so that in them all one everlasting logos, word of reason, reigns. Now, here's the thing. Imagine being a Greek or Roman in John's day and reading the words that open John's gospel, right? Try and feel this longing in every intelligent, spiritually minded Greek and Roman and then coming across these words, in the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. 
And then getting to verse 14, the Logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The point of all this, friends, is not just interesting ancient history. I want you to read John's gospel like ancient readers will have read it and be struck by the way John's opening theme is the way the longing of all human cultures, Jewish or Greek or Roman or whatever, comes to fulfillment in Jesus. The longing to know the operating system, to put a face to the order of the universe, comes to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The Word made flesh. God stepping across the threshold into history, making himself fully known. The architect in our lounge room. My simple invitation in this first introductory talk on the Gospel of John is simply come and take a front row seat to the greatest show on earth, God unveiled in the flesh in Jesus Christ. As we read John's gospel together, I don't just mean like here in church, but will you take up John's gospel and read it over and over and over, over our months uh, together working through this. And as you read it, will you Open your heart a little more, even if you're a long-term Christian. Perhaps especially if you're just sort of toying with this stuff. Go with an open heart and let God show himself to you in the words and deeds of Jesus. The word made flesh. And will you allow yourself to be surprised and disturbed by what you read? Because one thing is pretty clear. When we start getting really into John's gospel, by the time you get to about chapter 5, you're going to say, he said, what? And then it gets to chapter 6, and you're going to say, no. What? See, the thing is, God is not trying to accommodate himself to you. He's not looking at you going, oh, I better make myself sweet to you. Just as we must not domesticate God, read John's Gospel with an open heart and let God unveil himself to you in all of his beautiful, disturbing truth. And grace. Actually, the final lines of the prelude put it perfectly and I think capture the whole Gospel of John. Verse 17 and 18. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The same word, seen, that Jesus uses to Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen God. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Let's take a front row seat. To God unveiled. Father, we pray that you help us by your Spirit to see your Word made flesh in Jesus. Help us to know you. 
Help us above all to worship you in the power of the Spirit, through Jesus Christ. Amen.